Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. It's Mary. I'm back from maternity leave, and I'm so excited to be here. I'm joined by Elizabeth, Megan, Liz, and Amy. Erica's out because she's prepping for a trial that she has. And this is my first episode back from being on leave. I feel like I have missed out on so many happenings at the firm, but one of the most exciting and most recent things that we absolutely have to talk about is that our firm, specifically Amy Gunn and Pat McPhail, secured a $10 million med mal verdict in St. Louis County. Yay! So Amy, take it away. I want to hear about the case. Thank you. It is, I would say, very satisfying to have a verdict in favor of our clients. Those of us who do a lot of medical malpractice litigation knows that they Verdicts are very hard to come by in the plaintiff's favor. About 90% of men mal verdicts are in favor of the defendants. Um, and it's not to say that cases don't settle, because of course they do, but it, it does really point out how difficult it is to get a verdict in favor of a plaintiff in a med mal case. So we are very proud, and I want to thank Liz for all of the hard work that she put into it to get the case worked up. And of course, another attorney here at the office, Pat McPhail, helped me try it. The reason why Liz and I weren't trying this case is because we had another case set for the same week that Liz was taking lead on. Liz got a fantastic settlement the day before trial started in that case. And then Pat and I ended up trying this case for a week to verdict. This case was my client's or tremendously wonderful, deserving couple. The husband went to a orthopedic spine surgeon. This was in July of 2017 with some neck pain and some left arm numbness and weakness. It was determined that he needed two-level fusion and disectomy in his neck. So that occurred on January 31st, 2018 at a local hospital. During that surgery, it was our theory that the surgeon while using an instrument to remove some bone spurs from the spinal canal, contused or bruised or sometimes known as thumped the spinal cord, leaving my client with left-sided weakness both in his arm and his leg and rendering him, for all intents and purposes, unable to walk and wheelchair-bound. The difficulty, of course, in the case is the spine surgeon said that he didn't do that that he simply did not contuse the cord. That didn't happen. And he, of course, also had a different explanation for why my client ended up with a spinal cord injury. So the case evolved into a which of these two ways did my client's spinal cord become injured? Was it what we said, the surgical instrument contused the cord? Or was it what the doctor said, which was that there was a bleed in the spinal canal area called an epidural hematoma that occurred sometime, he couldn't say when, during the surgery as he was continuing to perform it, but he didn't see it, completed the surgery. And as my client was waking up in the recovery room, was unable to move any of his limbs, neither his arms nor his legs. And 
the surgeon observed my client for about three or four hours, gave him some steroids, which is, are typically used to reduce any inflammation that could be causing the neurologic deficits, and took him back to surgery about four hours after the first one was complete. Did not order any imaging between surgery one and surgery two, which without question is the gold standard to determine whether an epidural hematoma was actually forming because you could see the blood. Didn't request that, didn't order that. Instead, went took my client back to surgery, opened him back up, recorded an epidural hematoma at the C67 level, which was one of the levels that he had worked on previously, claimed that it was pushing the cord, the spinal cord, about one-third of midline. He evacuated it with a suction catheter, closed my client back up, and after that surgery, my client continued to have left-sided weakness, both in the arm and the leg. The interesting thing, of course, is that this particular surgeon, about six months earlier, had an episode in the OR with a different patient, also a client of mine, where he had, I think what we're agreeing to call it is a mental breakdown. And during that surgery with my client was talking inappropriately, asking to be taken to the mothership and other things indicative of truly a mental break, uh, was escorted from the OR, took a four-month, quote, leave of absence, and returned to the operating room at the end of November in 2017, about two months before my client's surgery on January 31st, 2018. And I had the client from the July 2017 surgery first, and then, because our firm gets a lot of MedMal referrals, this case came in, and I was like, uh-uh, not again. So I don't know if any of you all have listened to the Dr. Death podcast and Dr. Death episodes, and I can't say that this is quite as bad as Dr. Death, but it certainly does have whiffs of surgeons being allowed back into the OR with signs of incompetency known by the administration. So in addition to suing the surgeon for, again, botched neck surgery, if you really distill it down, we sued the hospital for a negligent credentialing claim, uh, which is a separate cause of action, arguing that this physician should never have been let back into the operating room and that his return to the operating room was not policed in a way that would allow the hospital good enough knowledge to know whether he could continue to operate. So we had the negligence claim against the surgeon, the negligent credentialing claim against the hospital, and we proceed to litigate the case. About two weeks before trial, the trial judge granted summary judgment to the hospital on the negligent credentialing claim. And this is it's sort of a new cause of action, really. I don't know about new, but it's a newly refined cause of action in Missouri. There's a Supreme Court case, Tharp, that talks about it. And it requires this element of causation where you have to prove that the hospital knew the doctor was incompetent. And that's the word that the court uses. That's not a word that's typically used in medical negligence. We have the definition of negligence and incompetence really is, no one's really sure what that means. So while we had an expert talk about whether the physician was 
administratively competent because there are joint commission rules that all hospitals have to follow regarding physicians with mental or physical problems. The court determined that we did not have an expert who could say that the physician on the date of the surgery was medically incompetent. And Liz, you look like you can help me out understanding this a little bit better because I'm still kind of confused. I just wanted to <laughs> to plug an article that you and I wrote a couple months ago. I think mm-hmm. it was an AIEG yes, article. The Voice. Basically, I researched and I specifically researched it because of this case. Right. I wanted to know as much about negligent credentialing as I could because Missouri law is not very clear on it. And frankly, Tharp leaves a lot up for argument. I, I don't think it's a it's a particularly clear case for practitioners when we're trying to determine what is and is not incompetence. And so I researched, I did a 50 state survey in order to prepare this article. And what I could find is it really varies from state to state. The easiest of these negligent credentialing claims are cases where the physician has lied about their background and training and the hospital has just failed to actually confirm what the doctor is trained to do. So if they lied about their residency or their fellowship and they say, I can do XYZ surgery and they actually can't, then that's a clear cut, perfect exhibit A of what a negligent credentialing claim is. And actually, if you go back to the doctor death case that's sort of where it goes because this they did not check if i'm remembering that podcast correctly they did not check with his references to make sure that he was qualified to be doing spine surgery so negligent credentialing but other cases can be where the surgeon doesn't report all of their malpractice claims specifically lawsuits because that is something that can go into whether or not you get privileges at a hospital and so hospitals have a responsibility to confirm that a physician again is quote unquote competent to perform surgery now this case was not an issue of whether or not the defendant doctor had all of the necessary qualifications was he educated in this was he trained in this had he done these types of surgeries before absolutely it was a question of whether he had lost that competency because of the behavior that he had shown the six months prior to this client's surgery. And that was the argument was that he had shown a clear break in his competency. And when he was allowed back to the hospital, there really was no oversight. But the hospital's corporate representative stated, you know, we had people watching him. Well, what do you mean by watching him? You know, nurses and anesthesiologists, they report back. So basically, hospital gossip was the way that they were trying to monitor how this surgeon was performing his surgeries, which you can't put that on a tech to know whether or not a surgeon is doing something correctly. Um, And they also limited him to, quote unquote, bread and butter spine surgeries, which uh, frankly, yeah. I don't want anyone describing. I don't think that's a term of art. <laughs> no, but that was exactly the phrase that the hospital administrator used in his deposition. Yeah. Is the question in your case, as far as expert testimony, we've talked about experts before in this podcast. In this case, did you have to have an expert say that a defendant doctor loses competency or the hospital, the bigger entity in the case, knew that there was a loss of competency at any point, or does it have to be on the exact day? What do you have to have your experts say? That's part of the problem. If you read the decision, it's difficult to discern what I have to prove and how I can actually prove it. Most hospital policies and procedures experts 
are not spine surgeons. They're PhDs, they're administrators. They probably are physicians, but they're more administrators. Our hospital administrating expert, who is not a MD, but rather a PhD, very well qualified on the Joint Commission standards and what the policy and procedures should be in order to get a physician back into the OR safely, testified that the rules weren't followed. The Joint Commission has steps to be taken. They weren't followed by the hospital, and the, and the doctor should never have been in the OR that day. If they had followed the rules, he should never have been in the OR that day. You can also have him monitored or proctored or that type of thing. That's all negligence. The causation piece, THARP muddles, in my opinion, because you have to have expert testimony that says that but for the hospital negligently allowing this physician back into the OR, this wouldn't have happened, but it's not good enough just to say he should never have been there. So it really, what comes down to is you need a, in this particular case, you would have needed a spine surgeon who is also an expert in policies and procedures in the Joint Commission. An administrative. Administrative expert who can say, I have the perfect intersection between what went wrong during this surgery, what the negligence is, and why the hospital's failure to follow the policies and procedures creates that link to the negligence or link to the damages. And it's just, that can't be the only way right. that you make a negligent credentialing claim. So I felt very hopeful that our intermediate appellate court, the, the Eastern District of Missouri, would review that motion for summary judgment and give us some guidance, help us out to understand what Tharp, the Supreme Court case, does in fact require. So that was an interesting twist about a week before, or, or it was probably about 10 days before trial when that summary judgment order came down. I mean, that's really important information, in my opinion, for a jury to hear, to judge whether this doctor was competent or not, okay, for the negligent credentialing, but also just negligent or not, or for a punitive damage claim, which we had, which the jury can take into consideration all kinds of facts about whether this physician knew or should have known what was going on with his body and his mind that day. So we lose that summary judgment motion. But on the bright side, I will say it simplified the hell out of the case. That's what I was going to ask yeah. is, at that point, who are you going to trial with? Who's in the courtroom? Another twist and unique to a negligence against a, a, a physician and a negligent credentialing claim is how to try the case and in what order. Because Missouri does not have any good law on what be has become known in this case and others as bifurcation. So the defense, both defendants, the hospital and the physician's attorneys argued that the case should be bifurcated, meaning that I should try the case first against the doctor. And if I win against the doctor, then I can try the case against the hospital because a prerequisite of a negligent credentialing claim is the doctor is actually negligent. Now, that's not anything that's really set out very well. And you can argue that that's not really fair. It should all be tried together. All these facts kind of work together to get to the end result. But the judge granted that bifurcation. He did say it's going to be the same jury. So I pick a jury. Both defendants' attorneys are there. Both defendants are defending the case against the doctor. I can't tell the jury why the hospital is there or why there's two lawyers there. The jury knows there's going to be two phases. 
if I win against the doctor, then they go deliberate, come back. And then we start phase two, which is my negligent credentialing claim. And I bring in the negligent credentialing expert and then the hospital. So, you know, I think that that was going to be really weird, may or may not have contributed to the summary judgment order being granted because it was just going to be messy. But at the end, having the hospital out and not having to deal with the bifurcation brought us to this very, dare I say, bread and butter (laughs) medical (laughs) malpractice claim. Nice. I have a question. Yeah. So you brought this negligent credentialing claim. Is that a med mal alternative or in addition to a negligent hiring and retention claim? Because I know in a lot of our trucking cases, we sue the trucking company for negligent hiring and retention if they should have known that the driver was likely to drive recklessly, had a ton of prior maybe DUI convictions or something like that. There's a negligent hiring and retention claim against the trucking company. Is there a cause of action like that against the hospital in a case like this, or is negligent credentialing an alternative? It's basically the medical alternative to that. Because remember, most doctors aren't employees of the hospital. And this brings me to another interesting, maybe not to anybody else, but to me. So in Missouri, we used to have agency. So when a doctor worked at a hospital, not employed by the hospital, but worked at the hospital and performed services for patients at the hospital, whether they're surgeons or radiologists or hospitalists or whatever, and were negligent, the hospital had liability through agency. And if you could prove that the physician was the agent and was controlled by the hospital, the hospital was responsible for the agent's actions. So, however, our legislature a few years ago decided that was unfair to the hospitals. I know this and am bitter about it because it was a case that we worked on that created the need for the legislature to fix, quote unquote, this problem. Not only worked on, but had gotten up through the appeals process. And that is how we won that issue. And it was longstanding Missouri law. It's it's longstanding common law. This idea of agency, you learn about it in in law school. It goes all the way back to England. And then the Missouri legislator said, oh, not going to let you do not that one anymore. Yeah, and, and created just another roadblock. Just I just another roadblock. have to say this right now. We're going to have another podcast specifically talking about agency. Yeah. It's way too important not to. I didn't mean. Yeah. I know that we just... I want to hear more about that, but I've got to say it. So we're going to be accountable for it. We have to do it. It's so important for people to understand the implication of what that means for them and their loved ones who go to hospitals it's to get so treatment. True. Yeah. It's so true. Because if anybody actually knew what it meant, nobody would be in favor of that. But in that case, that was the Jefferson case. And and by way of background, very- Is it the same hospital? Yeah. <laughs> That's why when they got summary judgment in this case, I kind of looked at the lawyer like, I guess we're doing this again. And he was kind of like, yeah, I guess we are. Because it was very similar where the hospital gets out on summary judgment right before trial. And I tried the case against the physician. And in the Jefferson case, we settled the case during jury deliberations. Literally, 
within 30 seconds, I kid you not, like I can't make this up, within 30 seconds of shaking on the deal, the buzzer rang after like nine hours of deliberation. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. And so, and I won that case, by the way, but I had settled. So anyway, that was the one where the hospital had gotten out on the agency issue, got reversed from the appellate court saying, no, agency is still a thing between a radiologist and a hospital, and then litigated the case against the hospital, which was basically proving that the doctor was negligent and settled that case right before trial. In response to the Jefferson opinion that reaffirmed agency is a thing between a doctor and a hospital, that's when the lobbyists for the medical industry really went to our state legislators and said, you've got to fix this. So in response to the favorable opinion from the appellate court saying no agency is still a thing between doctors and hospitals, the medical industry lobbyists went to the representatives and basically lobbied for a statute change. And the statute, we call it employed physician statute, which says specifically, unless the doctor is a W-2 employed physician, there is no such thing as agency. So unless you can prove that the hospital is paying the doctor to be there as an employee, agency doesn't exist. So what's crazy is the first case I mentioned, our first client with this particular surgeon in July of 2017, when that negligence happened, the agency law still applied. So the doctor is, we're arguing the doctor is an agent of the hospital. The law changed in August of 2017. And the client whose trial we had last week, that negligence occurred in January of 2018, So we couldn't use agency anymore. We used negligent credentialing. So a lot of laws have unintended consequences, and this is one of them. And lawyers, look, y'all, we're savvy. We're smart. We're going to look around for ways to represent our clients, even despite laws that look like big roadblocks. And what I see happening is if we can't use agency anymore because of the employed physician statute, we're going to look at negligent credentialing. And that's what happened in this case. Now that you know who you're proceeding against, maybe you can tell us about the actual trial itself. What was unique about it? Um, What do you remember? And especially what I thought was really fascinating with this case is because the medicine, this is complicated, spine surgery, unsurprisingly, is is kind of is like rocket science or brain surgery or something like it's complicated. But the way that it was being presented to a jury of 14, if you count the two alternates, I thought that that was such an effective way to present this case. And so that is something that I would like to talk about is just how you were able to put that medicine on and, and prepare your not only your experts, but also your clients and those witnesses to hammer home the damages in this case because the jury clearly was on your side on damages and I thought that was a credit to the clients in this case for real yes certainly as many of you listening know I've said this in the past I am a very chronological thinker I need to know when things happen and the order in which they happen and if I can get that straight in my head I can explain anything I can explain anything and that's how I proceeded here 
I put together a five-page medical chronology with like one sentence per entry. And I know, for example, John Simon would be like, that's way too long. That's way too long. And I agree with you. But it is, it partly, it was for my edification to see in my mind how this was going to go. But I also believe that it's a, an effective way to teach people things. The doctor's theory was that it was this epidural hematoma. And the science of epidural hematomas includes that if there's a slow bleed, even in a confined space, such as the spinal canal, it's going to take time before that pressure builds up and causes compression on the cord that manifests itself in neurologic deficits and weakness or sensory loss in your limbs. So I researched the hell out of epidural hematomas and learned that it should be no surprise that blood, like water, follows the path of least resistance. Your spinal cord is untethered in your spinal canal. So if you have a bleed within the epidural space, it should traverse more than one level. It should really flow up and down the cord. It doesn't stay in one spot. Why would it stay at the C6 level and not go up or down? That never made any sense to me. Moreover, it encompasses or surrounds the cord because again, it's not in a confined space. So why was it only on the left side, according to the surgeon? Why was there one blood clot on the left side of the cord at C67 pushing the cord over by a third? I just couldn't, and I researched and I researched and I couldn't, I just couldn't understand it. And guess what? It's because it's not true. <laughs> That's what I, I resulted on. It didn't happen the way the surgeon claimed it did. And so then I went through all the records, like what is the evidence other than the surgeon's own operative report, that there was an epidural hematoma. I mentioned he didn't order any imaging between the first surgery and the second surgery, so there's no evidence of imaging. There are quite a few references as you look through the records to the epidural hematoma, but they were all cut and paste diagnoses from the surgeon's operative report. So we decided not to call, and I conferred with my experts, like, is this a thing? Epidural hematomas can cause neurologic deficit, but in the manner that I've described. It takes time to build up pressure. They're never in one little spot. And so my expert was like, no, that's not a thing. And then, of course, knowing what I knew, which is this doctor had had a break six months earlier that required him being off work for four months, and this is his livelihood, he comes back. He's done a handful of surgeries in November and into December, two of which had complications because, again, clients of ours. And by the end of January, he has a patient who wakes up from a, quote, bread and butter surgery and can't move any of his limbs. I tried to put myself in that position thinking, yeah, I mean, he has to know what this means. So... We were not in a position where we were going to accuse him of lying or falsifying records. We didn't need to do that. But in my mind, it made sense why he was going down the epidural hematoma path. Now, I didn't get to share any of that with the jury because, like I said, all of it got excluded. But 
that compelled me to really not give up on this case and just because sometimes you look at these records and you say, oh, my goodness, the surgeon said epidural hematoma. No one has said an epidural hematoma is negligent. My experts were never going to say an epidural hematoma is negligent. Because, I was going to ask that exact yeah. question. If that's the route the doctor's going, there's no way that anyone's going to come in and say that was negligent. It's got to be epidural hematoma, sorry, happens. Right. It's a complication. The bleeding happens. And look, this doctor took him back quickly, evacuated it quickly. That was all all appropriate. But we had to make a decision that we're calling this a contused cord. Contusing a cord is negligent. And we believe that the science and the chronology of what happened is consistent with the cord contusion and not an epidural hematoma. So, Amy, the chronology I thought was key. And I can I can speak to this in more detail after you explain it, but I, I had a chance to talk to the two alternate jurors who actually, even though they did not get to go back for deliberations, hung around for quite a while they because sure they, they wanted to see the verdict. And so I asked them about, you know, what, what did you find compelling in the case? What were your thoughts? And they talked about a specific piece of evidence called neural monitoring records. And so I'll talk about what they said, but can you explain to the listeners why neural monitoring records were so important to this case and to the chronology? Yes. When you have a spine surgery, most, if not almost all surgeons now will order neural monitoring, which includes the patient being hooked up to, for all intents and purposes, electrodes at different muscle groups in your arms and legs while under anesthesia. And then three things are monitored. Your motors, which is your functioning, your weakness, your strength, which is the front half of the spinal cord, and the sensory, which is the back half of the spinal cord, uh, which is numbness, tingling, sensation. Also EMG which is a continuous, if there's any irritation on the nerve roots, it's going to fluctuate. And as you're proceeding with spine surgery, the EMG is continuously running. And if there are spikes, then the surgeon knows that they're irritating the nerve roots. And they may need to back off on the decompression, maybe need to back off on whatever they're doing, let things calm down. It doesn't mean that there's a bad injury. It just means, hey, you know, like, one of the surgeon's experts likened it to the game of operation. So you you hit the side and it buzzes. It's like, eh. Yeah, and you're like, okay, and you pull back. Warning. Right, <laughs> you, you pull back. You're like, let things calm down a little bit. So what we found out in the neuromonitoring records, which, by the way, were very difficult to get, are not part of the patient's chart in the hospital. You have to know that they exist, and this is all these things that I've learned, you have to figure out what company has them, and then you have to request them from the company. And in this situation, one little fun, spicy piece of information was that the spine surgeon, the defendant spine surgeon, had created what I called a shell company of his own, a neuromonitoring company. He then took that company, contracted with a neuromonitoring company that actually had equipment and employees and <laughs> physicians who read the monitoring and are, are participating in the surgery and then got a 40% cut at the end of the day of the proceeds. So yeah, 
Yeah. And, and that came into, that did come into evidence. We kind of slipped that in. And I can't say that that was a fact pointing to negligence, but it stunk up the place. And I can't imagine the jury wasn't affected by it. But once I learned, and I swear I stumbled on this, I totally stumbled on this information, like when I was deposing the defendant doctor. And we just, we were like dog and a bone at that point. Well, one piece of information that didn't come out during the trial, but that we learned was that this particular shell company, you asked, you know, you own this company, you get 40% of these cuts. Who are your clients? Who are your customers? Just me. Yeah. He had created a company where he is both the owner, sole owner, and the sole customer. And he gets 40% of this neuromonitoring, which is thousands and thousands the of dollars. The bills for the neuromonitoring were $44,000. The, the oh bill my God. was $44,000. Now, that's not ultimately what you know, they collected, but right. I mean, really, it was like, that's not helping you. How do you, but anyway, what happened though, is we requested records from the company, the defendant doctor's neuromonitoring company and actually got some records, but not the key record, not the key record, and then requested them from the other company that actually did the monitoring. And they, those records were a mess. They were a mess. They had the one physician who was reading the actual waveforms during the surgery didn't sign the report. Some other doctor who had nothing to do with anything signed the report. And because the defense believed that the neural monitoring records proved there was no injury before the end of the first surgery. So they believed that the neural monitoring records proved there was not a cord contusion during the first surgery because a cord contusion there's no coming back from it. When the cord is bruised or contused or injured, it's done. It's done. And the epidural hematoma allegedly didn't start until after the end of that surgery. And so they believed the neuromonitoring proved that our theory would never work. And that concerned me for a hot minute because I was like, okay, okay. Then I dig through those records and we find, and I hire an expert who digs through those records and know what he's look, knows what he's looking at. And then we request more records from the, the actual company that did the monitoring. And lo and behold, we found the one record that at 10.22 a.m., because I still <laughs> never forget that time, it showed that even before the surgery was over, when the motors were triggered. And again, this goes back to what's being monitored. The motors are hooked up and they, but you have to ask for motors to be tested. It's not a continuous form like the EMG is. They are tested at the very beginning. So you get a baseline and all four motors were good when the surgery started, meaning that when he was asleep, when they triggered the impulse, the muscles reacted in his both legs and both arms. That's good. That's normal. And then when there was some activity on that EMG that was at the same time this physician was working on the C67 level, which is ultimately where the contusion was, there was some EMG activity that was concerning also on the record. And the physician did not ask for motors to be tested which is pretty standard practice if you want to know whether you've had a cord problem. Because again, the EMG just, just talks about the nerve roots 
that come off of the cord. So if you're not testing motors, you can't prove whether there was an injury or not. So again, I'm a conspiracy theorist. So I'm like, I know why he didn't test the motors. I know exactly why he didn't test the motors. But at the end of the case, you have to test motors. It's just, again, standard practice. Not that surgeon didn't ask for it. The tech and the monitoring physician just do it. So at 1022, when the motors were checked, they were diminished in all four extremities, with the left lower limb being questionable. And that was the record that was left out of the records that we received from the defendant doctor's neuromonitoring, which I'll tell you this, I didn't put that together until I was in trial. I did not put together, or maybe the day before trial, or when I was really digging in, did not put together that the 20 pages of records that we got from the defendant neuromonitoring company left off that key read at 1022. And instead we got it from the other company. So I was able in my experts direct testimony to kind of put that up because the name was the same and say, Hey doc, I'm going to show you what's been marked as exhibit blah, blah. Can you show this to the jury or we put it up on the board and it's the affidavit that says, you know, this is the records from this neuromonitoring company. And I say, can you find the event log, which was the name of the big record? Can you find the event log? And I have to say, we did practice this. So he does this, like looking at every page, you know, he's like, I don't see it. I'm like, huh. And can you read that company name again? That's, you know, the defendant doctor's company. And so we had this whole kind of direct routine, if you will, put together. And I could see the jury like, hmm, getting very interested. And then I said, what is missing? Because we'd already gone through the event log. And wait, I'd already taught them how important the event log was before we did this. So they were, again, very suspicious of this. And Liz, that finally gets to your question of on direct, how do you teach the jury this science? How do you teach the jury this medicine? I can tell you the way I do it is chronologically, as I said, and I use my experts. In this case, I had a neurologist slash neurophysiologist and a spine surgeon. And I put them on the stand and I let them put their professor hat on and I told them in prep, we're going to teach the jury your, what you do for a living. And you're going to make it as simple and as interesting as possible. And by golly, they did. And we worked on how that was going to come out. And it was very non-partisan almost. It was very much like, here's the anatomy of the spinal cord. And our jury loved it. They were note takers. They were interested so by the time we got done with our case, I had taught them this whole business of the anatomy, the front part of the cord is motors, the back part is sensory, what it means to ask for motors, what it means to have weakness in all four extremities, how that is evidence of a cord injury before the, the case is even closed, what an epidural hematoma is, what it looks like on a scan, why the MRI that was taken after the second surgery on January 31st that did show a contusion was a result of an instrument versus an epidural hematoma because y'all, I had the instrument. And even though it was a little bit off scale because we put a couple of the images from the MRI up, I had the instrument and it was they were not dissimilar. The area of the instrument 
was, you know, one millimeter, which seems really small. But when you put it next to a cord and put the instrument next to the contused area on the spinal cord, it fit. It fit. So the jury is now not only hearing what the case is supposed to be, but they're seeing it. And there is no going back from a jury learning something themselves being told something. I thought that the the way that you placed your experts was the perfect way because it, it, it fit, again, chronologically. The, the first expert that testified was uh, your orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. And he went in there and he explained to the jury how exactly this instrument could have caused and did cause in this case, this particular injury. So he goes in and he sort of sets out the 30,000 foot view of, look, we're looking at it from the the surgeon's point of view. And this is how this instrument, when you go in, when you thump the cord, when you contuse the cord, basically you, you slid in too far with this instrument onto a very sensitive part of the body. That is how this happened. And then from there, I felt that the next expert, which was the neurologist who could explain the medicine behind how cord contusions cause the type of injuries that the client has, it took it down from that 30,000 foot view to directly you are at like a molecular level. And he got up and what I loved was he used, I thought this was perfect use of um, the whiteboard. Right. He went in and he drew out what the cross-section of the spine was. He showed exactly where all the motors are. This is what affects here and here and your arms and your legs. And so if you have an instrument that's going in from this direction, which is the, the jury already heard it yesterday from the orthopedic spine surgeon, they know that that's where the instrument came in. This is why this pattern of injury fits perfectly within this type of causation. This, this, the fact that this was a contusion by an instrument, a sudden trauma instead of the epidural hematoma theory, which is liquid. And so I thought that that sort of taking it really big picture and then narrowing it down, that really helped the jury to understand. And by that point, frankly, I thought the case was over. So not only were you all able to show during your case in chief the nature of the injury being cord contusion and not epidural hematoma, but you were able through digging and discovery and working up the case, the exact timing of the injury. And I think that is so powerful in a case to a jury Getting into a timeline, as soon as you started speaking about kind of the steps of what happens and the neuromonitoring, and when you can, you know, you showed exactly what the injury was, the exact timing of it, and you were able to show where you found that and it wasn't handed over when you asked for it, that is dynamite. When you can do that as an attorney, it is artful and it not only shows that you know exactly what you're doing and how to present a case, but it means you did your homework over the last Two years or however long? Three, yeah. Three years that you worked up the case. It's like it all comes down to that moment. I appreciate that because I looked at it like a puzzle. And what we were doing is presenting all the pieces to the jury. And I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm just telling the jury things. Just this is, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. I always want to take the position that we're almost in this together. Let's learn this together because I know if someone believes that they've thought of it themselves or have learned it, 
it is 100% effective versus just somebody telling them something, especially jurors who are going to be weary of lawyers telling them things. So that's the way I presented, like, here's the timeline. Here's how we're going to explain how these things happen. We also focused on proving that it was a cord contusion first, kind of giving a little bit of the back of the hand to the defense theory, because we didn't want to come out of the box saying epidural hematoma 15 times. I instead wanted to convince them it was a a cord contusion, and then they could use that same science and come to the same conclusion that I did, which is this is not an epidural hematoma, but still addressing why it's not an epidural hematoma almost as a, a, an afterthought. And one of the alternate jurors, when I asked her, you know, what would you think about the case? What really stood out to you? First thing she said is those whole neuromonitoring records. That's so shady. So shady. <laughs> Who is this doctor and why, where were the missing pages and why didn't he give them to you? And I sat there and all I could say was, you know, those are really great questions. Yeah. We were wondering. This yeah. Never ourselves. got an answer, did you? And I love that candidness because we have on one hand, you have your chronology out in front of you with all the medical terms. And you know that there's you know, 10,000 words that you had to even learn what they mean as you're talking to your expert and you're doing your own research. And then you hear from a juror who's saying, that's not shady. Yeah. And it's, you know, you're not going to get in front of the jury when you're putting together your artful medical terminology and, and say, and this was shady. Yeah. But, but you have to take a really complicated medical procedure and explain it in a way that someone will listen to it and understand it enough to step away and go, yeah, that sounds shady. Exactly. I mean, that's the goal. You, exactly. You, you hit the goal right there. So a couple of, I'm trying to think of some, some tips or some advice, particularly to that chronology. So I had three columns, date, event, and source. Because I have tried cases before where I've done a chronology and the defendant gets up and accuses me of like leaving out 16 pages or something ridiculous like that. And obviously, you know, I'm doing a chronology for ease, but it sort of lends yourself to this criticism from the defense or whoever your opponent is to say, well, why did she put this date, but not that date and just looks makes you look uh, dishonest. So I put the source of that and I said to them, to the jury, before I put the chronology up, hey, folks, this is a summary of what I believe in the records are key issues. This isn't everything. I'm not trying to show you everything and really just get it out front to ward off any of the inferences that might come from the defense. But the source is I wrote Exhibit 10, page 262. And that way, the jury knew that there was a actual page this was coming from. And then a couple of times I would pull up the page just sort of proving, you know, that I this is where it came from. But it prevented any inference from the defense that I was just putting things in that were good or, or whatever. So my tip on that is to do a chronology for sure, but to add that source or that citation so you don't get caught short with someone trying to tell you or trying to argue to the jury that you're, you know, making it up or cherry picking, if you will. The other thing is, again, with this direct examination, we worked hard with these experts. And it started with the first conversation and continued through the deposition prep and into the trial prep. I knew what I wanted to get out of these folks 
And luckily, they were very smart gentlemen and trusted me to get them to where we needed to go for this client. I also ask for buy-in from my experts for the clients. I never let my experts forget why they're there and who they're there for. You know, sometimes it's easy to forget the client per se because you're just talking about medicine and talk about a patient and don't really reference their name. But I always get buy-in from the expert about why we're doing this, why we're doing this together, who we're doing it for. And I find it very compelling. Experts, you know, especially physicians, they're patient advocates normally in their heart, most are. And it's not too big of a leap to ask that doctor who is used to taking care of patients and doing the best they can for patients to translate that into this testimony for that patient as well. So I, I never miss an opportunity to sort of get them on board in that way as well. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. There's so much more to hear about this case. So let's wrap it up here with part one of Amy's trial. And next week, we'll come back for you all to listen to part two. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today.